All right, you can turn in your Bible to Genesis 24. We're jumping back into the book of Genesis together. There should be a study guide that was in your chair. If you don't have one, maybe you can throw a hand up. If you don't have one of those study guides, okay. If there's any extras around you, feel free. Anybody can be a volunteer to take them back to uh, those in the back there. Can everyone hear me in the back? So as those are going out, go to Genesis chapter 24. You know, at different times uh, in the life of our church, we've been in the book of Genesis and we've come through it up to this point a good while back. And as I said, we're just jumping back into it today. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to your word right now, that you would help us to see Christ and to know more of you, to know more of how, uh, how amazing that you truly are. Lord, there's so much that we know in word, so much that we know that can come off our lips, Lord, and yet our hearts be cold toward it. And we hate that, Lord. And so, God, I pray that You would deliver us from it this morning. We speak to our own souls. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that is within me bless Your holy name. Lord, I pray that our souls would cry out to You, Lord. That our hearts will worship You. Help us to incline our ears and hear. Lord, Your Word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Like a fire, as my brother prayed a moment ago, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. We are so thankful for Your Word, Lord. We're so thankful for Your Word, Lord. Uh, We recognize that one sentence from Your mouth, Lord, is such a grace. It's such mercy. You don't have to give us that. So we recognize that the grace that You pour out in giving us Your Word. Help us, God, please, as we meditate on it this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, so as I said, we're back in Genesis. Let me mention just a few significant uh, transitions. There's several transitions throughout the book of Genesis. So let me just mention a few of those. So if you think about Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and then you got the rest of the book, Genesis chapters 12 through 50. That's a transition that happens right there in chapter 12. So Genesis 1 through 11 is this uh, almost 2,000 years of primitive history of the creation of the world, the creation of humanity, the creation of nations, this massive uh, book of history in Genesis 1 through 11. And then you get to Genesis 12 through the end of the book, chapter 50, and it zones in to the history of this one small family, beginning with Abraham and his family. So there's a tra- transition from the history of the universe to, the, to chapter 12, a zoning in to this one Small family. Now, if you can answer the question of why, why does the first book of our Bible begin to zone in on one family? If you can answer the reason, what is the reason for that? Then you understand the book and you understand the gospel. So that's a transition in chapter 12. But also within uh, chapters 12 through 50, when it zones into this family, there are more transitions. So chapter 12 through 23. Is laying out Abraham and Sarah and many things that go on there with Abraham and Sarah. And that's where we were last time we were in the book of Genesis, chapter 12 through 23. And so then you come to chapter 24 where we are today. And there's another transition. We're transitioning from Abraham and Sarah to now we're going to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Isaac is the son of 
Abraham and Sarah, and he's, we're going to see him in this chapter today get a wife named Rebekah. So there's a transition. Later there'll be another transition to, uh, to Isaac's son Jacob and his wife Rachel, and then there'll be another transition to Jacob's sons and some things that happen with Jacob's sons. And so what I want you to see is we find ourselves today in Genesis 24, and we're in a transition from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And what I want us to do starting off, I just want you to get caught up in this story. This is a very interesting story in Genesis 24. Um, it's, it's just interesting to read. It's interesting to, to understand. So I want you to get caught up in it. I want you to understand the plain sense of what's here. And we'll, we'll try to uh, read a little bit and, and learn a few lessons. Read a little bit, learn a few lessons. And at the end of our time together, I want us to zoom out and say, what is this all about? So get caught up in the story of Genesis 24, and then at the very end, we're going to ask that question, what in the world is this chapter recorded in our Bibles? What is it here for? What's the point? So allow yourself to get enveloped in this story, Genesis 24, this story of how Father Abraham sent his trusted servant to get a bride for his son. Get caught up in this story. We're going to take it in six parts, as you see there on your study guide. So let's start in chapter 24, verse 1 through 9. This is Abraham's going to make an oath with his servant to travel back to the city of Nahor and get a wife for his son Isaac. So let's read that together, verse 1 through 9. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send His angel before you and you shall take a wife for My Son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of Mine. Only you must not take My Son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So what's going on here? Abraham is old. It says he is advanced in years. He's an old man at this point. Uh, Sarah also uh, has passed on. She, she has died. We saw that in Genesis chapter 23. Isaac is about 40 years old at this time. His son Isaac is about 40 years old. The servant that he's speaking to, that he's sending to go get a bride for his son, is also an old man. It says here that he also is advanced in years. More than likely, this is uh, the Genesis 15 Eliezer that we read about that Abraham first put forward as, let this one be my heir since I don't have a son. More than likely, that's who this is. So you have this older servant being sent out by Abraham to get a, get a bride for his son. Now, there's three things that Abraham wants. And what we just read, three things he wants, and he is absolutely convinced that it's God's will. That these three things are God's will. Okay, there's three things. So let me mention those three things. One, he wants a wife for his son. He is convinced that his son should have a wife. Now, all of us don't have that, right? God, God may not have uh, our children get married. Maybe he would have them to be single their whole life. But he is absolutely convinced it is God's will that Isaac have a wife, number one. Number two, she cannot come from the Canaanites. Remember, Abraham left his land, left his country, left his family, left his people to come to the land of Canaan because God told him to. And God said, I'm going to give you this land. But he's looking at the Canaanites all around him, this godless pagan people. And he said, his wife 
cannot come, number two, cannot come from this group of people. And so the servant receives the instruction from Abraham. He says, yes, okay, I, you know, yeah, I'll do that. But listen, what, what if I go to get a wife from Isaac from your homeland? What if I go do that? And then she won't come with me. That's a hard journey, right? It's a big decision to make. What if she won't come? What if she won't do that? Uh, should I bring your son Isaac back to your homeland? And that brings you to the third thing that Abraham wants, and he's very adamant about it. He says, do not take him back to that land. He tells him that once, and he says, look, God made me a promise about this land, and he says it twice. Only this that you do, he's adamant, do not take my son back to that land. So you have those three things. Abraham knows he wants these things. He believes, convinced, this is God's will, that his son have a wife, that she not come from the Canaanites, and that his son does not go back to Mesopotamia and the city of Nahor. Do not take him back there. Now, how serious is Abraham about these three things? He's very serious. He makes a formal covenant, a formal, he enters into a formal oath with the servant. Okay, that's that whole business of put your hand under my thigh. Thankfully, we don't make oaths that way anymore. Okay? But, but that whole business, put your hand under my thigh and swear an oath. He says it right there in verse 1 and verse 2. Put your hand on my thigh, swear this oath. And then he says it again, you see, in verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore, swore to him concerning this matter. So he's very, very serious about it. Now, how can Abraham be so sure that these three, these three things are God's will? How can Abraham be so absolutely sure that these three things are God's will. It's a special revelation as in immediate. Like, did God tell him uh, the day that he went to the servant, did God say, did he say, I want Isaac to have a wife. She can't come from here, so send your servant back to your homeland to get a wife, but don't take him there. Did, did, uh, did he get special revelation in that moment to do that? And the answer, we don't see anything like that in Genesis 24. The answer is no. So how, how does Abraham have such confidence that God wants these three things? And here's the answer. He deduces these three things from previous revelation that God has already given him. Much like what we do, that we take the, the revelation God has given in His Word and we believe the words of God and we make decisions in our life and directions in our life based off the trajectories of what we find in the previously revealed Word of God. And so Abraham's doing something like that. God has spoken some things to him and based off what God has said in His Word, the truth that has already been revealed, he knows these three things need to happen. He's confident it's God's will. And here's why I'm thinking like that. Look at Genesis 24. Look at verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, here's the words of God, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abraham is pointing back, listen to the servant, listen to me. God told me, gave me a promise. He said something to me. And based off of that, I'm saying something to you. So where does he get these things from? Number one, Isaac needs a wife. How does he know that? Because God has already spoken to Abraham that through Isaac is this promised seed that is to come. That through Isaac is coming multitudes and eventually the Messiah and the Christ through this man. So, so Isaac through his offspring is coming to Christ. Therefore, Isaac needs a wife. She can't come from the Canaanites. Where does he get that from? Probably from Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham, listen, your people are going to go to Egypt for 400 years and be enslaved there in Egypt until the iniquity of these Canaanites is filled up. This is a cursed people that are going to be destroyed. Don't get his wife from here. He's going off a of previous revelation. Things already revealed to him. What about, why not go back to the land, uh, to his homeland? Why not go back to his homeland? Because God gave me a promise and given me this land. Don't take my son back there. This is the land of our people. So he's living off this previous revelation that he has already received, that he's already received from God. Now, Abraham is an example to us of a man of faith. Now, if you study just Abraham all over the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, what does it say about Abraham? And again and again and again, we get Abraham being put before us as a man of faith, 
Look at that man's faith. Imitate his faith, it says in Hebrews 6. Imitate the faith of Abraham. Well, how can we do that? This is what it looks like to be a man of faith. This is what it looks like to be a woman of faith. That you lead your life by what God has revealed in His Word. You just believe the truth of His Word. Yes, Lord, You have said these things. And I believe what You said. And then I line up my life. I lead my life with the trajectories of Your Word in my head and in my heart. I believe You, Lord. It's a man of faith. A man of faith. A man of faith leads his family in this way. That he lines up his, his children and his family. He lines up the coming generations with the promises and the truths in God's Word. So this is an example to us of Abra- from Abraham of being a man of faith. Now let's go to the second section here as we take this passage. Verse 10 through 14. Now what we're going to see here is the servant's response to Abraham. And then we see the servant's prayer. We're going to see him respond and he's going to pray. So so read verse 10 through 14 with me. Look at it. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, here's his prayer. He said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, try to imagine the scene. So we don't know anything about the journey from here to there. But we know the servant responded to what Abraham wants him to do. He swore the oath and there he goes. He's headed back to Mesopotamia to go get the son a bride. He's doing that now. Try to imagine, see, he's got ten camels with him. He's got all these, uh, all these goods, all these uh, treasures, all these riches that are with him. And he takes them there and it says he makes his camels kneel down in the city at a certain time when all the, all the women of the city would come out. And, and so, so they're so okay, all the ladies are coming. I'm, I'm here to look for a bride for the son. And all the ladies are coming out to the well to draw water from the well at this time. So, so I'm going to kneel my camels down right here. And, and that's what he's doing. He's looking, he's looking for a bride. And then he prays. And think about, think about what he's asking God for right here in verse 12 through 14 in this prayer. What is the servant asking God to do? The very first verse, verse 12, he's saying, God, grant me success, God. Grant me success in this journey. He realizes his dependency upon God. God of Abraham, grant me success today in what I'm here to do. I want you to notice that he doesn't ask God for a miracle. He doesn't ask Him for a supernatural miracle to show Him who the lady is. But instead, what we see Him doing is expressing trust in the sovereign providence of our God. That God is control in control of absolutely everything, every event, every thought, every event, everything that goes down. That God is in control. And we see this man expressing a trust in the sovereign providence of God. Now, it says in verse 14, there is, and this is a quote from verse 14, there is one whom God has appointed. Now that same phrase is used in verse 44. We'll get there. But there's one whom God has appointed. In other words, there is a chosen bride for the Son. There's already a chosen bride. There's one that God has already chosen for the Son, Isaac. There's one there. So he, he knows that. He believes that. And so how does God, excuse me, how does this servant ask God to reveal the one that he has chosen? And we see it in verse 14. He says, God, he's just trusting in, you're in control of everything. You're in control of it all. So God, let it be that the one that I ask, give me some water. 
And then, and then she's going to say, um, yeah, and I'll water all, uh, you know, I'll give drink to all your camels as well. God, let her be the one. Just put your providence on display. Put it, put it on display and let her be the one. Now, now you know what's coming, that God is about to put His sovereign providence on display in this passage of Scripture. If you've read it, you know it's coming, but you can just feel it's coming just by, just by thinking about His prayer. It's coming. A random girl is going to walk up. He didn't know her name, but her name is Rebecca. She's going to walk up. He's going to say, uh, can I have some water? And she's going to say, yeah, you can have, you can have some water and I'll, I'll uh, give water to all your, your camels as well. And, and then He's going to ask her the big question, right? The big question is this lady has to come from Abraham's family, from Abraham's tribe. He's got to come from there. So he, he's going to ask her the big question, um, who's your father? And, and then she's going to answer, and, and the answer is going to reveal she's from Abraham's family. And this man is going to bow down and worship and going, man, Lord, you brought me right to the one whom you've chosen. You brought me right to the one that you've chosen. So God's providence, His sovereign providence is put on display in Genesis chapter 24. Now, God's providence is something that we have spoken about and talked about and meditated on a lot together as Grace Community Church. Now, why is that? And let me be very quick to say that wasn't my idea and it wasn't Dustin's idea. In fact, it was no man's idea. Nobody said, you know what we did? We need a good dose of the providence of God at Grace Community Church. It's not why we keep talking about this stuff. It's because we're just teaching the Bible and it keeps flowing out of God's Word again and again and again. So listen to me. Don't miss the beautiful providence of God. Don't miss it. Don't miss it anywhere in the Bible and don't miss it. Don't miss it here. Now I want to do something. I want to read something to you. From, uh, from a man named Kent Hughes from his commentary on, uh, on this passage of Scripture. And, and he's just talking about the problems of God. I figure I've said it in so many different ways you need to hear from somebody else. Listen to this from Kent Hughes on the providence of God. He says, The scriptural doctrine of divine providence is that God has total hands-on control of the world. Total Hands-on control of absolutely everything in the world. Okay? All right, let, me, let me keep reading. Listen to this. They're talking about Genesis 24 and God's providence being revealed here. And just so happened, this lady shows up and she happens to be from Abraham's family. He says this. Such a God, of course, is great beyond our imaginings because He maintains all of life involves Himself in all events and directs all things to their appointed end while rarely interrupting the natural order of life. So rarely does He even perform this supernatural move. He's just guiding every little tiny event on planet Earth, every leaf that falls to the ground, every bird that needs to be fed, every hair that's gray or black on your head. Every single thing. And keep going. It says, now this is an awesome thought, Ken Hughes says. It's an awesome thought. The God of Scripture is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally injects His power into life. He is far greater. There's something, listen, He's far greater because He arranges all of life to suit and affect His providence. This makes all of life a miracle. All of it. God is over all. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and all-controlling. This is the God of Scripture. Anything less is idolatrous reduction of our puny imaginations. So I want you to see providence of God, glorious God. Look how glorious He is and what He's doing and what He's revealing Himself to be in Genesis 24. Now let's go to the third section. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 15 through 28 we're going to see God answer the servant's prayers. Okay, God's going to answer the servant's prayers. Let's read verse 15 through 28. Listen. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. 
Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two braces for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Um, is, there, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She, she, she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me. The Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother, her mother's household about these things. Okay, a few things to take away here. So it says at the very beginning, verse 15, before he had finished speaking, he's praying, God, you know, God, he's, he's asking God for this thing. We just heard what he's asking for. And he's not even done asking for it. And boom, there she is. She's right there. God sent Sent what he's asking for before he even asked for it. God's planning all these things out for the glory of his name. Matthew 6, 8 says, God knows what you need before you ask it. So apparently prayer is not about you valiantly and graciously informing God about all that you need. Apparently that's not what prayer is all about. But the sovereign God of providence knows what you need before you even ask it. And before He's done asking. Here she comes. God has already sent her. So there she is. And what's he say? He says, can you please give me a drink of water from your jar? And, and she says, sure. And she says, but look, I'll also give water to your camels also. Now look, that took some work. That's not an easy task, not a quick task. I did a little research. This, this would have taken about two hours. Camels are thirsty. Thirsty, thirsty beasts. And this would have taken about two hours. Go down, draw the water, come back out, put it in the trough. Go down, grab the water, come back up, put it in the trough. Go down and get the water, come back up, put it in the trough. Again and again. This, this took some labor. This, she's sweating it out. And this process is happening, probably for a couple of hours more than likely. This process is happening, okay? So far, so good. I asked her for water. She's giving water to, my, to the camel. So far, so good. Now, what's he doing? As she's drawing the water for the camels, what's, what's he doing? It's just a funny verse. But verse 21, the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord would prosper his journey or not. He's just watching her like, I think God's, I think that's the one. <laughs> He's looking at her. And, and, he, and what, what question does he need answered? He, he needs the question answered, is she from Abraham's family? Because she, she is. And God has heard my prayer. And, and, and this, is, this is the one. And so he asked her, the big determining question, who's your father? Who's your father? And she answers, and, and it's revealed through her answer that she certainly is from the family of Abraham, from where he, from where he came, that she, she fits what he's been asking for. And then he bows down and begins to worship. He just starts worshiping the God of sovereign providence, the God that's shown loving kindness to his master. Just imagine that worship. So what does Rebecca see? Yeah, my, my, my father is. And the dude hits his face. And starts calling out to God. And, and, and she sees that. And what does she hear? She hears this. She hears, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. She's heard of him. Abraham? The one who left? Did he just say the God of my master and she hears that. The God of my master Abraham, who's not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me. She hears that God has led me. God has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. And so, and so, what, and so what does the lady do? She runs. I don't know if it wigs her out or if she's excited, but either way, she runs. 
She goes, it says in the last verse of verse 20, she runs, she goes back to her mother's household and starts telling them what happened. This guy was there, gave him some water, started giving some water to his camels, and, and, and uh, it was a little bit of work. And when I was done, he asked me where I was from. And he's from Abraham. Remember, Abraham left. He's from Abraham. <laughs> this is Abraham's servant. And, and, uh, and he's praising God that he found Abraham. He's here to talk to us. He found Abraham's family. Now, I don't know what the servant's doing at this time. Maybe he's sitting there going, you know, he bowed down to pray. And where'd she go? Uh, she's gone. Okay, so he's still there. He's still there. And then we get to verse 29. This fourth section, verse 29 through 49. And we're going to see how the servant gets to Abraham and Rebekah's uh, family and how he begins to address them. Now, there's a lot of repetition it's, it's a lot of verses, 29 through 49, it's a lot of verses, but a, we're going to go through it quickly because there's a lot of repetition here because the servant's just going to tell them exactly what just happened. And it's going to use the same language, pretty much, that we've already, that we've already read. So look at me, verse, verse 29. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Okay, he's one of the ones hearing from, he's hearing Rebecca talk about this guy out there. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. Now you're already suspicious of Laban, aren't you? So he saw the gold. He saw, uh, he saw the bracelets. He saw the ring in the nose. And he said, I'm going to go talk to this guy, right? You're already suspicious of this guy. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, so Laban says to the servant, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I've said what I have to say. And he said, say on. So there's Abraham before the family. He's there. He's kind of suspicious of Laban, but there he is. He's before the family. And he's about to repeat. He's about to recount what's already happened. He's really about to recount three things that have already happened. Okay. So the first thing he's going to recount here is the errand that he's been sent on by Abraham. We see that in verse 34 through 41. Look at it. And so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he's become great. He's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants, female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old and to him he, he has given all that he has. So it says, my, God's blessed Abraham and they had a son Isaac and all of it's been given to Isaac. Verse 37, my master made me swear saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord before whom I've walked will send, with, send his angel with you and prosper your way. You should take a wife for my son, from my clan, and from my father's house, then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So he says, this is the errand Abraham sent me on. He just said everything Abraham said to him. Okay? Now, now next he's going to tell them, okay, so then when I got here, here's what I prayed. He's going to tell the family, this is what I prayed when I got here. Verse 42. I came today to the spring... And said, O oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. You got that same language again. God, let her be. And, and, and he calls her the one whom God has chosen. The chosen bride, the one whom God has appointed for the Son. And then you get to verse 45, and, and, he, and he tells them, and, he, and here's what God did. I prayed that, and here's what God did. Verse 45. 
Before I finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said, I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camel's drink also. So I drank and she gave the camel's drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, now her son, and, and uh, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So he lays that all out for him. He says, look, Abraham sent me and I got here and I prayed like this. And can't you see God's providence and, and, and look how God answered my prayer. And now here I am talking to y'all. Here I am talking to y'all. And then verse 49, he wants them to respond. He says, now then, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So he's telling them, okay, it's time for y'all to give me an answer now. Okay, God's put his providence on his play. I told you why. I know this is God's will. I know it is. Now, what are you going to do about it? He's looking at Laban. He's looking at her father. Uh, her father said, what are you going to do about it now? Are you going to respond to this? And it brings you to the fifth, fifth section, verse 50 through 61. And we're going to see how Rebecca really does go with the servant. Look, look at verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and mother said, let the, young, let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days, and after that she may go. But, but, but he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Well, let us call the young, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, his men, and they blessed Rebecca and they said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate him. Then Rebecca and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca. And went his way. So he speaks to the family, and it, it says here at the very beginning that Rebecca's father and brother agree. Man, that's from God, that's from the Lord. So initially they agree, yeah, take her. This, this has got to be from the Lord. So, so again, the servant bows down, he worships, and then he, then he, uh, he, he eats and he goes to bed that night. Uh, uh, oh, excuse me, before he does that, he showers her. He showers the bride with gifts and everything. Then they eat and then go to bed that night. And, and then he wakes up the next morning and there's this delay. Hey, just, you know, let her, let her stay here at least 10 more days. Let her stay here at least 10 more days. And the servant's not having any of it. He won't stand for it. He says, no, God has prospered my way. Send me away now. I want to go now. And all this brings us to this really sweet, this really sweet moment where, where now the chosen bride gets to choose. A really sweet moment where, where uh, they look at Rebecca and say, do you want to go with this man? And what does she say? She says, and it's so sweet, she says, I'll go. Yeah, I'll go with this man. The, the one chosen by God gets to choose and she accepts the groom. She accepts the son. Now why did the bride, Rebecca, why did she choose the son, Isaac? She's never seen him. She's never seen Him. All she has is the words of the messenger. And all the treasures poured out from the Son. It's all, it's all that she has. 
She says, yeah, I'll go. Why did she choose to go? She hadn't seen him. Why did she choose to go? Because she's the one appointed by the Lord. She chose him because she's the chosen one. She chose him because she's the chosen one. And so it says the family blesses her in verse 60. In verse 61, they're off. There they go. Headed back to Canaan. Come to the last section, verse 62 through 67. We're going to see Rebecca and Isaac are going to meet here. So read it, read it with me. Look at it, verse 62. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Laharoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac, first time we hear of Isaac, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there are camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel, said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It's my master. So she took her veil, covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Beautiful scene here. Isaac's meditating in the field. He's got a lot on his mind. His mom has died. Surely he knows about this bride coming. He got a lot on his mind. And then there's this, this kind of magic moment where it says, it, it says the same thing about both of them. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and, and, she, and she lifted up her eyes and saw. It says it about both of them. So that they lock eyes for a moment. And they lock eyes, and she gets down. She dismounts the camel. And she says, who is that? And he said, that's, that's the one. That's Isaac. That's, that's my master. And she, she throws the veil on. It's this symbol of, I'm, I'm the one. <laughs> I'm the one, I'm the bride. I'm the one you're about to, to marry here. And then, and then the servant begins to tell Isaac all the things that the invisible hand of God has done. Can you imagine that scene? Isaac, you know how you, you know, your dad sent me to go get bride. And I got there and I asked God this thing. And God answered my prayer. And man, he's in control of everything. And that, you know, you can just imagine Isaac like looking at her back. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh-huh. That's great. I see, I see that. I see this. I see this work. I see this happen. And so it ends in verse 67. She becomes his wife. It says he loves her. And he's comforted after his mother's death. Now that's a story. It's an interesting story, right? I hope you see that. Now, here's the question we need to answer What's the point? What is the point? Of Genesis chapter 24. It's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. Okay? Why so much time devoted to this story? I know it's interesting, but why is so much time devoted to this in the very first book of our Bibles? What is the point? What's the point here? Is this just one of the many moralistic, you know, moralistic stories scattered throughout the Bible? Like Aesop's fables, you know, that's the way that a lot of people read the Bible. That, you know, you just got a bunch of different disconnected stories. And in these stories, you read it and learn some lesson about your life, right? Is that what this is? You know, ladies, be, you know, uh, be servants, lady, and get a good man. Is that what it's saying? It's just morals to the story. And a lot of people read the Bible this way. A lot of people especially read the Old Testament this way. Or... Is this story about, uh, is it a lesson on how to get you a wife? You know, guys show up this morning, Lord, and pray, Lord, I'm, go- I'm going to you know, that place where the ladies gather, Christian ladies gather. And whichever one smiles at me, let her be the one whom you have appointed. Is that what this is? Now, you, you might think I'm crazy asking that, but you go sermon audio, type in, you know, sermon audio, where you look at a bunch of sermons all over the place. Type in Genesis 24 and look at your sermon titles. I'll give you a few. Parental involvement in dating and courting. <laughs> Thank you for that reaction. Uh, number two, 
How to find a wife biblically. This one was catchy. Essential potential for marriage. It had a little, a little subtitle. It said, we've all heard of the problems of looking for love in all the wrong places. Unfortunately, this is more than just a lament of an old country western song. Many believers are seeking love in all the wrong places. If you are a believer and desire a godly husband or wife, Pastor Phil offers insightful advice based on lessons learned from Abraham's quest to find his son and wife. Isn't that special? So what's Genesis 24 all about? Is it about uh, look at the providence of God and, and be a man of faith like Abraham? And you know, I mean, you need to see that. There's things to learn. You need to see that. It's beautiful. You need to see it. And it's getting a little closer, right? That's getting a little closer. But even that's not completely it. So what's Genesis 24 all about? Shocker. It's about Jesus. Genesis 24 is about Jesus. About Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I need to answer that. I need to back that up, okay? So, how is Genesis 24 about Jesus? And I want to give you three ways to see it of how Genesis 24 is about Jesus. Number one, because of its place in redemptive history. Do you understand that? It's, it's place in redemptive history. Do, do you understand the Bible that way? That idea of the Bible is a connected story of history. All of it about It's not disconnected stories, but one big massive story. If you want to get fancy, you could call it the meta-narrative. This big Bible story all about redemption, all about Christ. Do you understand the Bible to be that way? And if you do, then you're thinking, what is, what is Genesis 24's place in the big story of the Bible? Now let me tell you a little bit about my path to understanding the Bible as one big, massive, beautiful story of Christ and redemption. So here's a little bit about my path. You know, early on I get saved and 20 years old I'm converted. And man, I'm hungry for the Word. I'm eating the Word up, reading it. I mean, you know, coming through it twice a year for several years in a row, memorizing books of the Bible. I'm just hungry for the Word. So, so I'm not just ignoring the Bible. I'm, I'm loving the Word of God. And I'm thinking, man, it can't get better. I'm getting the Word. I'm growing in knowledge. I'm seeing what the Word of God is saying. And one day, I'm sitting at this conference and it happened to be um, Vody Bauckham preaching here in Mississippi on biblical manhood. And, and I'm listening. You know, I'm ready. And in the introduction, he says something that has nothing to do with what he's teaching the rest of the time. He, he quotes Genesis 3.15 that right after the fall of man in Genesis 3.15, it, 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 uh, God promises that... Um, uh, I'm going to put in, he's looking at Satan. I'm going to put enmity between you, Satan, and this woman. Between your seed, Satan, and her seed. Her seed. And you will crush his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And he starts talking about this picture of the Messiah, that there's coming one through the lineage of this woman called the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the tempter. And then he spoke about that verse as a thesis statement for the whole rest of the Bible. And so, my whole world is rocked. I know the Bible, I'm reading the Bible, I'm memorizing the Bible, but now my whole world gets rocked. I don't hear anything he says about manhood after that. I'm tracing out the genealogies going uh, throughout Genesis 5 and, and Genesis 10 and 11. And I'm thinking, oh man, uh, um, through this lineage through this offspring is coming to Christ and all of a sudden the Bible was connected for me. And it's this beautiful moment of, of, of the Scripture. Um, there's redemptive history is being laid out here in the Scripture. So, so that, that rocked me and then I started studying later and, and, and literally the last, next several months of my life are filled up with this kind of stuff. I'm thinking, okay, Genesis 1-3, through 3, creation of man, the fall of man, but right in the midst of that, a promise that Christ is coming to crush Satan's head. And because of their sin, an animal was slaughtered and, and they were clothed with, uh, with, with that, that animal that was slaughtered, clothed with the skin of the animal that was slaughtered. Their sin, bloodshed. And I'm going, oh man, look at God's Word. And then I get to you know, Genesis chapter 4 and I see the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. And, and the seed of the serpent murders the seed of the woman. But God raises up another seed. Why did God raise up Seth? Because Christ is coming through. And I'm going, man, Genesis 1-4 through 4 is about Jesus. 
It's about Jesus. Then I get to Genesis 5 and you know those boring genealogies. I'm going, those are here. The genealogies are about Jesus. I'm reading the genealogy of Genesis 5 going, man, this is about Christ because Christ is coming through this lineage. Then I get to the story of the flood and Noah. And I'm thinking, why did God preserve Noah? Was he just a great guy? Why? Because Christ is coming. Christ is coming through Noah. And I'm going, man, the flood is about Jesus. Noah's been, Noah and his family and you know his sons and their wives. Why? Because you have wives that have children, right? And, and through this lineage is coming to Christ. This story's about Jesus. And I'm just blown away that uh, you know it finally makes it to Abraham. And Abraham, you know, through that lineage, that genealogy from Noah to Abraham, Abraham comes in. Abraham's given a promise that through his seed is coming one that's going to bless all nations. And I'm going, man, I'm just 12 chapters in and all of it is about Christ. I mean, my world is turned upside down. I remember uh, Luke 24, verse 27. I had this verse memorized, uh, but, but the way I understood this verse was absolutely changed. Luke 24, 27, Jesus is risen from the dead. And he takes his disciples and says, beginning at Moses, Genesis and all, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures and things concerning himself. Now, prior to this event, the way I viewed that verse was Jesus kind of grabbing the bottle, grabbing a scroll or something and saying, you know, 315, that verse right there, that's by me. Okay? You know, skip some chapters, chapter 12, that's a promise by me. Skip several chapters, you know, that thing that happened with Isaac when he was offered up. Picture me. You know, skip several more chapters, you know. Deuteronomy 18 over there, that's a little problem. And it was just like this kind of skipping around and you got this Bible and there's a few little spots kind of throughout there that are about Jesus and they're scattered all throughout. And now, I've got Luke 24, 27 and I'm thinking about what's Jesus teaching as He goes from Moses and all the prophets saying, those things are about me. And I'm going, man, this whole thing is about Christ. All of it's about Christ. Now what about... What about Genesis 24? Try to consider its place in redemptive history. The promise is given to Abraham in your seed. All nations will be blessed. He gives the same promise to Isaac, the same promise to Jacob that there's coming one through this lineage. What's the reason that the Bible goes from primitive history to this small little history of this family? Because Christ is coming through this family. It's not moralistic stories. Christ, this is about Jesus. And so what we see in Genesis 24 is Christ is coming through Abraham and Sarah, the son Isaac, and Christ is coming through Isaac. So he needs a wife. Enter Genesis 24. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. All right, second reason that this Genesis 24 is about Jesus is because of Genesis 24, verse 60, the blessing is found there. At verse 60... Blessing. Just, just look at it with me. Our sister, may you become thousands of thousands and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate Him. Think about that for a minute. What's this blessing saying? Rebecca, may you become thousands of ten, ten thousands, just multitudes. And may your offspring possess the gates of your enemies. Of those who hate you. May your offspring, those thousands, let them possess the gates of those who hate you, your, your enemies. Now, these people are speaking this prophecy and they don't even know they're speaking a prophecy. Like in, in the Gospels, remember Caiaphas did that? It's better that you know, one man die for the nation than all the nation be done away with. And they don't even realize the pro- these evil people don't even realize they're prophesying. Same thing as evil people, they don't even realize that they're prophesying here. Now, here's why I see it this way. Because you could go back to 22.17 and he said the same thing to Isaac. Look at 22.17. I will surely bless you and I will surely multitude, multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And as the sand is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Just like he said it to Rebecca, he said it to, he said it to Isaac and Abraham. That you're going to have multitudes come from like the stars in heaven, and they're going to possess the gates of their enemies. You back up to Genesis 17, same thing said to, to Isaac's mom, Rebecca's mother-in-law, Sarah. Fast forward to their grandson, Judah. The same thing is said to Judah that there's coming one through you, Judah, that, that, that the scepter, the kingship, the scepter will never depart from Judah. And you will always, your foot will be on the necks of your enemies. 
You'll possess the gates of your enemies. Same thing said over and over again. So multitudes from Rebekah that victoriously, victoriously possessed the gates of their enemies. Now, now how is that fulfilled? In Israel, right? In Israel, because multitudes come from Rebekah, uh, nation, you know, this whole nation of Israel. Look at all these people, and they're possessing the gates of their enemies. Yes! And then it fails. And then their enemies possess them. And then they're nothing, and then they're squashed, because it's not ultimately fulfilled in them. It's fulfilled in Christ. Because through Rebekah would come Christ Jesus, and through Him, Thousands, as it says here, thousands of ten thousands from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that one that would come from her, Jesus would say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This story is about Christ. Genesis 24 is about Christ. And third reason, lastly, because of beautiful typology. Because of beautiful typology. Now types and shadows. <clears throat> types and shadows of Christ are found all over the Bible. Some of them are really obvious, right? Like the uh, uh, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. The Lamb dying in your place. Passover Lamb. Things like that. Really obvious stuff. And some that, that aren't so well known like that. But there's types and shadows of Christ all over your Bible. All over your Old Testament. Now, <clears throat> I reject the idea of allegorizing everything so that the Bible has no plain meaning, right? Just allegorize, you know, everything's an allegory. It has no, I reject that idea. This kind of artificial way to deal with the Bible that, you know, Jesus is behind every rock and you're just, it's just obvious you're just uh, being artificial in the way you're dealing with the Bible. I reject that. But, here's what I'm saying. God, think about it, sovereign God of providence that controls every event and all things. He orders and directs every thought, every action, every decision on planet earth. He's like an author writing a story, except not with pen and paper, but in real history. He's an author writing the story. Sovereign God of providence in control of absolutely everything. And so He can and He does give types and shadows even through history. Even through the way history is, historical events and the way things are lived out. I want you to see that God, our God, can do that. So, don't miss the beauty of this. Let's start with one that's really familiar. Genesis 22, right? He offers up his son. God tells him to offer up his son Isaac. So here we've got Abraham is a type of God the Father. He's a type of a picture, a shadow of God the Father here. And in Genesis 22, verse 2, He said to Abraham, Take your son, listen to the way it says it, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Your only son. And in this situation, he teaches him about substitutionary atonement where the son doesn't die, but a lamb dies in his place. Isaac is the obedient son. So Abraham's his type of the father and Isaac is this obedient son. He's strong enough to carry wood up the mountain and yet there he is offering himself freely. You see in the shadows? And then Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham by faith offered him up there and then received him back as raised from the dead, figuratively. Figuratively. So there's the son, Isaac, sacrificed by the father, uh, laid on the altar, and risen, figuratively, risen from the dead. You've got these beautiful pictures of Christ in Genesis 22. And then you carry that over into Genesis chapter 24. And Abraham is a type of God the Father. Having offered up his only son, having figuratively received him back from the dead, and he determines to get his son a bride. He's going to get his son a bride. So the father sends the nameless servant, the oldest, wisest, most trusted, and yet nameless servant. And it seems like his only purpose is to exalt the son and get the son a bride. And he got this beautiful type of the Holy Spirit and His work to gain a, gain a bride for the Son. 
Then he gets the bride and he pours out, not his own treasures, he pours out the treasures and the riches of the son are poured out on the bride. She gets the son's treasures. Rebecca is a type of, of the church, the bride of Christ. She's chosen, appointed, chosen by God, and therefore she chooses Him. Her marriage is planned before she even knows about it. She's never seen the groom, and yet she loves Him. 1 Peter 1.8, having not seen Him, she loves Him. And she goes to Him. And Isaac is a type of Jesus Christ, willingly offered Himself as a sacrifice as a sacrifice for sins, figuratively risen from the dead. The one in the promised land waiting for the arrival of His bride. And then He goes out to meet her and He loves her and He marries her. And God is in control of every single event. Can you imagine that moment when we look up and the Scripture says, now we see dimly but then face to face. Revelation 22, 21 says, and, and we shall see Him. And you catch eyes with Him. And you're with your Savior forever. And you're you're, you're the bride of Christ. And it says, and He loved her. Except this one, but Christ is forever. So I don't have much exhortation for our church except to say this. Worship Jesus. Worship Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him with all your heart. Soul, mind, and strength. Love the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him. Look at what this Bible says about Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your beautiful Word, and thank You for Christ. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You were offered up in our place to sacrifice for our sins. That You are risen from the grave. Thank You, Lord, for the work of the Holy Spirit to get a bride for the Son. Thank You, Lord, that You made so many of us here a part of that bride. Thank You for the promise that one day we get to see Christ face to face. We worship You, Lord Jesus. You are glorious above all. There's none like You. None like You. In Jesus' name, Amen.